We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Dina Justice. She has been financially responsible since age 15, including putting herself through college, two master's degrees, and purchasing her own home in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's made over $1 million through a fulfilling career as a facilitator, educator, trainer, mentor, and coach, working with thousands of people across the USA. She loved her career, yet hit a point where she felt empty. She was a classic case of high performer and leader hitting burnout. And that's our topic today, the burnout. Why we reach it, why women are particularly vulnerable, and how to save the day. Welcome, Dina. I was amazed reading about you to find that you took your first course in social emotional training aged seven. What was it and why did you take it? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. And Andrew, thank you so much for having me here today. So I was a very empathic child and I had this ability to get along with everybody and to communicate with everybody. And the school system recognized that and put me into this program. It was called PALS. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it stood for, but I did it for a couple of years. And it was all about being able to identify on somebody's facial expression in their body what emotion it was, and to be able to name it. And then building communication skills for how to talk to each other. That's incredibly powerful to actually be able to name feelings at a very young age. How has it helped you? I think it's helped me incredibly because that gift has continued. I've been the person in all of my different work environments, even in things I've been leading, that I'm the person that they say, Dina, can you go talk to so-and-so? Because I have this really beautiful gift of being able to connect with people exactly where they're at and to be able to talk to them in a way that they're able to feel received, heard, seen. And I often get the response from individuals that they're like, I'm usually really shy but I'm so comfortable talking to you. It's like my superhuman power to be able to connect to people. So if you've got this superhuman power for the rest of us mortals who don't have superhuman costumes, any hints? Because that seems like a very useful superpower. It really is. There's so many layers to it. And this is a lot of what I actually help teach other people now, because it's not just about the words we say, which is only part of our communication. It's really in watching other people and listening to them that all the communication starts to come through. So I really think that the more people can slow down and pay attention to who's talking to them in each moment, we start to gather a lot more communication than if we're just sitting there listening to the words. Or in today's society, technology, like if we read an email or a text message, we're getting less than 7% of the communication. So the more we can truly communicate with people, the more effective our communication. And when we really are present with somebody and we're paying attention to what's happening on their expression and in their body, that gives us more information so we can connect with them in that moment versus where are we in our head. 
Because often in our head, we're thinking of how to rebut or to disagree. We're not actually listening. We're preparing, aren't we? That's right. And so much of it is about us thinking we need to think ahead instead of being present with what is. And that ability to be in the conversation versus in our head can really change the flow and the dynamics of conversation and connection. I love that idea. In the communication, in the conversation, not in our heads. That's That's a lovely thought. Thank you for that one. So how come you became financially responsible for yourself from the age of 15? That's a great question, too. Unfortunately, my family experienced a pretty significant bankruptcy while I was a teenager, around age 13. And it was really difficult for my mom. I had always earned my own money from a really early age and been able to buy things I wanted. So by 15, I was working a full-time job after school. You know, I'd go to high school and then I'd go work eight hours and work 40 hours a week. So I really started to take responsibility for myself financially. My mom still provided a roof over my head, but I paid for my own car, my car insurance, clothes, the doctor, everything else. That must have been really quite frightening at 13 years old to suddenly find that there was no money. Can you tell us a bit more about that experience? I don't think that was so much connected to the money, but more about connected to a home. We lost our home in that situation also. And my aunt and uncle had a lot of property and we lived in essentially the office unit of some townhomes for a couple of years. And That was what was really hard because we didn't have our own space. And to feel that uncertain in my environment was really challenging. And to also feel like I didn't have any resources to help my mom. So you felt responsible for your mother, did you? Yeah. (laughs) For most of... Most of my life, I felt that. We've done a lot of work around that (laughs) so that she gets to be the parent, not me. (laughs) It's really difficult being in a position where you parent your parent. What do you think has been the long-term impact on you? The long-term impact, I have a great relationship with my mother. I really love her. She listens to me. She's the one that's been my spiritual support system, even when I was shoving my spirituality in the closet. But there was always that dynamic where I felt responsible. I really wanted my own life. So when I went to graduate school, I moved out of Colorado where I grew up. And that decision was a lot prompted by wanting space from her to not have to be responsible. And it's really only been in the last year that things have shifted for us significantly. I didn't talk to her from essentially February 20. 19 until January 18th, 2020. That's my birthday. And I spent a lot of time unpacking the dynamics between me and my mom and figuring out like, what did I need in order to have a new relationship with her? And I finally got that clarity in an ayahuasca ceremony. And that clarity was go to your mother on your birthday and tell her you get to be the child and not the parent. My sister helped facilitate that gathering and through it, both my mom and my sister decided that they wanted to actively recreate our entire family dynamic. And for the last year now, the three of us have been doing almost weekly work 
to recreate our relationships so that they work for us now. What does that weekly work involve then? What do you do? It involves a lot of different things. Sometimes it's just sharing. Early on, it was really slow and challenging because we would take time to think about how we wanted to respond. I really created the container for us by bringing different questions to the table. That was how I started my intimate partnership. And so I used those same things. I brought in the concept of the platinum rule, right? The platinum rule being do unto others as they want done unto them. Because the golden rule is fatally flawed. It's not about me. It's about them, right? So we talked about how do each of us want to be treated by each other? How do we want to feel in our relationships with each other? What kind of dynamics do we want? What are we willing to take responsibility for? And what are we not willing to take responsibility for? What are our non-negotiables? And that part about the responsibility, Andrew, was really key. That was me and my sister both saying, Mom, you're not our responsibility. You have to take ownership of your life. And that's been a really pivotal switch for all of us. And then we just keep expanding on this. A lot of the sessions are recorded. I plan to release them at some point to show other people how we can recreate our family dynamics. Sometimes it's just like us having a good time. Sometimes it's deep, hard work. Sometimes it's deep sharing. Every session is very different. Well, I am so impressed because I think it is the hardest thing to do to come to your parents as an adult and not to actually become a child all over again. So, you know, my big congratulations. Has the fact that you parented your mother meant that you've actually also parented everybody else, you know, like your co- <laughs> co-workers, your partner? Now, this is such a great question, Andrew, because that happens, right? When we have these patterns of codependency, how do we do that in other relationships? And I would say that for a good portion of my life, that was definitely the case. And In 2015, 2016, I decided to be intentionally single to break my relationship patterns. It was really important to me. What's intentionally single? Yeah. I walked away from another relationship choosing me for the first time in my life. And I said, I'm not going to do another relationship with a partner until I get some clarity around what are my patterns my patterns that I keep repeating in relationships that are not getting me the results that I desire. I did a lot of what I called practice dating. And (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, so this person is that repeat of that pattern. Okay, I'm not going to do that again. Thank you, universe. Here's the door to the left. I've learned my lesson. (laughs) (laughs) That is so hard to do, isn't it? Yeah. That time gave me a lot of space to literally play the witness to myself, to be like, oh, look at that pattern I'm doing here. And I've done that in past partnerships with men. I've also done that in past relationships with friends. Got it. Okay, that doesn't work for me. Let's change that. And it was actually in meeting the man I'm with now that I showed up to do things significantly different to really stand up for what I'm a yes to, to stand up in my power, in my boundaries about what I deserve and what I desire in our partnership. 
I came to him and I said, my intention with you is to co-create an amazing relationship every single day that's based on us and our yeses in each moment and not by all these ideas about what society has put on us about how partnership is created or timeframes for things to occur in. And as I did that, that's when I realized that if I really wanted to honor my commitment to breaking my relationship patterns, I had to go to my root cause, which was my mom. And that's when I stopped talking to her. And that gave me the space to really create this interdependent relationship with my partner instead of a codependent partnership. Then there's this beautiful element in that to come back around to your question about parenting other people, Andrew. This relationship, we show up and we support each other in every moment, exactly where we're at. And sometimes that is an honest request for, hey, I need a little bit of parenting right now. Can you do this for me? Because this is something I didn't get as a child and I'm working through some stuff. So we do it because we're a yes to it, not because we're doing this like unconscious pattern of old behavior. So we get to create a really different relationship. And I'm doing that in all of my friendships now. And there's nothing wrong with being a bit of a nurturing parent from time to time. The problem is when you get stuck in it, isn't it? Exactly. And now I think we're beginning to get lots and lots of clues about how you burnt out. But uh, <laughs> let's go Let's go into that topic. Give me a, a picture of Dina, what you were doing before the burnout began to take hold. So, you know, give us a, a, a flavor of your life at that point. A flavor of my life before the burnout. I had been several years out of a long-term relationship and I was seeing a man that there was a lot of great things in that relationship, but there was a lot of Dina still not getting what she wants. And I was still working in my career that I loved. I did it for 17 years and I just, there was no satisfaction in my life. I just felt empty most of the time. The things that lit me up didn't light me up anymore. The only thing I really had that was still lighting me up was my running. I was doing a lot of self-development workshops at the time. And it was in one of those workshops. I was literally standing in the middle of a room of about 100 people, walking around. We're supposed to ask for anything we wanted. A hug, a back rub, cook me dinner, take me on a trip around the world, give me a billion dollars, whatever it is. And I stood in the middle of that room sobbing uncontrollably because it was the first time in my life I truly acknowledged that I didn't know what I wanted just for Dina. I'd done what I'd always thought other people wanted me to do and what society wanted me to do. And that was when I started to recognize like, oh, I feel empty because I'm not doing what I want and I don't even know what I want. And I can feel the emotion when you say that. I can almost see you at this precise moment in the middle of that circle sobbing. It really was that powerful, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And if you're forever giving out, there's nothing left in the tank, is there? No, there was really nothing left. I was really, really depleted in my day-to-day -day life and just got into a point where it's like, I didn't want to do anything. And I had been 
one of those people that I packed my schedule from sunup to sundown almost every day of the year, including weekends. If I spent more than four weekends at home in a year, I had a belief that there was something wrong with my life. So to go from like always being busy to not planning things was a really significant shift. But that space is what started to allow me the time to figure out, well, what does light me up? What does Dina want? So did you step away or did you literally just not be able to get out of bed? Well, I was still doing the the day-to-day thing of going to my job. There was just a complete lack of motivation. Like I'm not somebody that struggles with motivation, but I was not motivated. I was like, I don't want to do these monotonous tasks. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do the easy stuff. I didn't want to do the fun stuff. It was just complete dissatisfaction. And a lot of sitting around, just sitting around trying to figure it out. And what did I want? Were you scared to admit to people that you were burning out? Yes, I was pretty scared. A couple of the, like my colleagues at work knew because we had really great friendships. And I did start to plan my exit from my career at that point, but it was like, I didn't know what I wanted next. So it took time. It took about nine months for me to figure out what I wanted to do next and to make that transition. So what did you do? Well, the biggest, scariest part for me was not feeling financially safe. So I found a great contract job that essentially doubled my salary and allowed me to work remotely. So I transitioned into that. And within a couple of months of that, uh, I was able to really kick off my coaching business. I was already doing my coaching business. I'd started that earlier in the year. I was doing a lot of workshops, group programs at the time. So I had that kind of starting, but it was in getting out of my job that I really had the time and space to put my attention into building my coaching business and helping other people in their lives. So what was the reaction of people around you when you were going to leave a secure and good job? I had a great government job, definitely had the golden handcuffs on. So of course, people are like, what? You're going to leave your job? Like, don't do that. That's silly. Like, can't you just do it for a couple of more years, like build this thing on the side. And I was like, no, I know that's the smart thing to do. And my soul is dying over here by doing that. I have to get out. That's a really good way of putting it. Your soul is dying. How how do you know that your soul is dying? Explain to us. Not feeling the light inside of me, not feeling the exuberance, the joy, the drive, the motivation, the things that had really been, I would say, the core part of who I am and my personality, to feel like that part of me wasn't being fully expressed every day. I think that was the biggest factor and the biggest sign for me that what I was doing was not sustainable if I stayed in my job. So talking to other people who've burnt out or about to burn out, what do you find are the reasons why people burn out? I think what I see in a lot of my clients is a similar trend that I experienced, doing things because it's what other people have told them to do or what society's told them to do. Oh, become 
this career or this career or this career and make a lot of money and it's good for you. Yet they might be good at it, but they're not fulfilled at it. I like to even bring it into that idea of the zone of genius and the zone of excellence. We often get stuck in our zone of excellence instead of our zone of genius. And I see that over and over with my clients, people stuck in their zone of excellence. And they can be phenomenal at it, but there's no spark inside of them to keep that energy going because what they really want is something bigger than that. Getting to that point where someone can say, wow, I've made all of these decisions based on what my parents wanted me to do or what my friend group is doing. And I wanted to do the same thing because I wanted to belong to that. I'm doing this because I see this in the media. These are really big trends, like the group think aspect of it versus the allowing each person to tap truly into their heart's desire and to take action on the heart's desire to make that the thing that they do. I think that's a really big switch for people to go from like unfulfilled burnout to stepping into what I really want. And that's a scary transition for people when they're high performers. How do I step away from something that's maybe a really great career and is really part of my identity? And you're getting a lot of very positive feedback. You're getting lots of good strokes. Everybody wants you. What I've discovered is people who burn out tend to be perfectionists. Do you recognize perfectionism? (laughs) Oh, yes. That is definitely one of the the trademarks. Perfectionism, that was a good rule of my life. I had the to-do list and the task list with all of the I's and all of the T's written down to make sure I checked all of the boxes and then double-checking my work and spending a lot of time doing the things that actually weren't going to move me forward. So learning to do the 20% that gets me 80% of the results has been a huge switch. That's a significant thing I help my clients with. Like, what are the the top things, the five things out of the 20 that are going to get you the results? The rest of those, let's let those go. Getting somebody that's a perfectionist and an achiever to let go of doing it all is a really significant switch for them. I struggled with that. (laughs) Well, I find that 100% isn't good enough for them. They want 300%. Exactly. So I love the idea of just doing 20%. My God, if if they even do 50%, (laughs) but let's aim really low. That's right. And for a perfectionist to aim low, that means you know they're going to still (laughs) overachieve. So why do you think women are particularly prone to burnout? I think it's very much about the way we are brought up in our Western societies, that we're nurturers, we take care of other people before we take care of ourselves. I would say pretty much every single woman client I have struggles with being able to put herself before anybody else. So that constant desire to put other people first, put our career first, put our children first, our relationships first, our family, our parents, whatever it is, that's a challenge. I mean, there's just no end to how many things that you can put above you in the list, isn't there? Even the chores, right? Like, oh, I'll take care of the dishes and the laundry. The people who can't rest until they've wiped down their kitchen surfaces. That was totally me. Do you think at the end of your life, you're going to regret the state of your kitchen surfaces? 
not now. Let me tell you, even after years of this, there are nights where I look at the sink if we've left anything in there and I'm like, everything inside of me gets tense. And I'm like, Dina, it's okay to leave the dishes in the sink until the morning. It's okay. (laughs) And hiring somebody else to occasionally come in to do that for me has been a super big challenge for me. Mm. I would hate to be the person that came in to clean up after you, because I have a feeling you might be wandering around, maybe even with the famous gloved finger to check up on them. (laughs) Yes, my former house cleaner was always like, your house is so easy to clean, Dina. (laughs) Just make yourself clean. So let's get some advice on what to do if you are feeling that you're heading towards burnout. The first thing that I'm thinking of is, and you've already raised this topic up, the importance of saying no. So tell me why no is such an important word to help with burnout. No is a complete sentence, first of all. I think that's a really important part of learning to say no. No is a complete sentence. Why is it a complete sentence? No does not need justification, validation, explanation. No is no. And a no is exactly perfect if that's your truth. Learning to say no, I think, is a really important part of navigating, moving through burnout to the other side. My clients and myself included say yes to everything. Oh, I'm a yes to that. I'm a yes to that. Because there's this, especially women, I don't want to disappoint anybody. I need to show up to take care of the people around me, especially the people I love. So there's a constant stream of yeses, which means there's no time for someone to take care of themselves, right? And then things fall through the cracks. And then it's just this downward spiral of feeling bad about ourselves because we let something slide or we didn't show up there or we didn't do the perfect job. Right. So getting to the point of saying no is really important and learning how to honor the feeling in our body about a no. Right. If my body isn't a hell yes to something, and that means all of me is like leaning in, is excited about it, then it's a no. Anything less than a hell yes is a no. If I'm trying to talk myself into something, then it's a no. I think this is a really great example for me, like shopping, clothes shopping. If I have to talk myself into anything, that's an easy decision. Like, oh, that's a no, because I'm not a hell yes. Right? So the more we can learn to honor our authentic yes and our hell yes, that creates so much more space. Now we start to move away from burnout because we have space. That was part of what I saw to tie that back around there, Andrew. I had the schedule that was packed. So many of those things on my schedule were a yes because I didn't want to disappoint the people around me. But it's not necessarily what I wanted to do. And do you find your clients are likely to self-sabotage? And if so, how do they do it? Yeah, self-sabotage is a really significant aspect of this. And that's our unconscious mind getting us what we want or need through behavior that may or may not actually work for us. Even things like getting sick. Well, if I get sick, then I have time for myself. I used to get sick probably four or five, six times a year, significant colds, sinus infections, things that could take me out for a couple of weeks at a time. If I'm sick, then I don't have to do those things on my calendar. Sorry, guys, I've got to bail. I'm sick. 
right? I see that all the time. When I stopped being a yes woman to everything, moved out of things that were not fulfilling, I barely ever get even a sniffle now. People can do other things too, significant injuries, blow up fights with their partners, their children, their family members, their friends, all of that's this behavior that's coming out, trying to help us get our needs met in ways that may not be working for us, but it gets us what we need. So that's that sabotage layer. So you throw a tantrum and then suddenly everybody runs around and helps. Exactly. And a lot of times that might happen because of our inability to ask for what we want or what we need. Again, that comes back to the female role in our society. We're nurturers. We put everybody else first. Shame on you if you ask for anything because then you're selfish. That's what our society has taught us, but it's not true. I think this is going to be for about half of my female clients. What advice do you give on how to ask for what you want? Now, this is for you yourself, not for your children or for your partner or for your mother-in-law or for Uncle Tom Copley, but to ask for yourself. How do you ask for yourself? Please tell us. The first step is being able to actually honor and acknowledge what it is that I want. What is it that Tina wants or needs in this moment? Or what are my desires? And then being able to be vulnerable with the people around us to let them know, hey, I need to ask for something. It's hard for me to do this. Do you have space for me to do that right now? Are you available for that? Can I ask you for this? And you can let me know if you're a hell yes or no. This learning how to ask permission from other people so that we create a safe place in which to express our needs and wants and desires and to be able to ask authentically. So it might look like one of my love languages is touch. And my partner from his past experience in his marriage has been very shut down because he wasn't allowed to express that in his marriage. And even though he he also uses the love language of touch, I have to often ask him. So I'll be like, honey, I love you and I need some more touch. Can you give me some more touch today? And that just might be like walking past me and like rubbing my back or pulling me into an unexpected embrace, but continually asking. And I think that's a really significant aspect of this, Andrew, is the willingness to show up for ourselves and ask over and over and over. And for somebody who's an overachiever, who's always taking care of other people, to learn how to ask, it's going to feel like way too much. And I had this advice when I learned, like, you're too much. Your feeling of too much is probably just the right amount, Dina. So keep going. Keep asking. It's okay, Dina. And it's a really great space to also learn to receive somebody's authentic yes and their authentic no. And what I would say is in the same way you said no is a sentence and you don't have to explain why, I think when you ask, finish the question off, get that question mark, would you give me a back rub? And that's the end of it. You don't have to put a second sentence in which says why you'd like a back rub, why you deserve a back rub, the 30 reasons why you've never had a back rub beforehand and therefore you really must have it now. Just do the ask. The explanation weakens the question. I completely agree with that. 
the asking is where our power lies, utilizing our voice to speak our authentic truth without justification or explanation. That's where our power comes from. I think that's a really important aspect here to learn as well, especially shifting out of burnout, learning to ask, learning to only do the 20%, etc. cetera, is staying in our power versus slipping into all of that justification because we feel potentially like we're selfish in that moment of asking. And the more we practice just standing in our power, our authentic ask, the more powerful we truly get to become. So I think it's almost worth practicing the the question beforehand, can I have a back rub? Full stop. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That workshop I was telling you about where we were walking around asking for anything we wanted, that was the point of the exercise to make an authentic ask and not have to justify anything and to receive somebody else's authentic yes or their no. So any other tips for dealing with the burnout? I think space, which I've talked about, is a really big one. Breaking out of perfectionism. I'm going to summarize these a little bit. Breaking out of the perfectionism, doing 20%, less is more. Learning our authentic yes or no. These are really big keys. The thing I want to talk about for a moment, Andrew, is I work with so many people who don't know what they want. And that's a really important aspect of shifting out of burnout is having time to find what it is that someone desires. With my own clients, I have a couple of different processes I put them through. My favorite is what I like to call a series of inquiries where I ask them for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour, the same question over and over and over. And this ties back into what I was talking about at the beginning too. It's not just the words we say, it's the qualities of our voice that we elicit when we're speaking. It's the way our body language is. So doing this with my clients, either in person or over Zoom works. But I ask the same question over and over in different ways because it triggers different emotions and different responses and it allows our unconscious mind to access different things. So I might say to you, Andrew, what do you want? And you would give me your response and I respond by saying, thank you. And then I ask again and I might say, Andrew, what is it that you desire? right? And now I'm bringing in song. I might even yell it at them. I might whisper it. I might say the word so slowly that it's eliciting something different in there. And that's a really important part of the communication aspect of this. We do this exercise. I recorded on an audio file for them. And people often feel really uncomfortable in this because it's like, oh, I have to admit what I want, especially women who are not well-trained to admit what they want often can be really uncomfortable. And when they feel like it's enough, that's when we're just starting to get to the good stuff and we just keep going. And it helps people really uncover things inside of them that they might've known are there, but they've forgotten about childhood desires that are still alive in them. I'll give you a great example of this. Went home to see my family in Colorado in November to have some pretty challenging conversations with my parents. And I was also in the process of buying a new luxury car, which for me was not practical. I grew up with things needed to be practical, right? 
So it challenged my belief system. It was about what I wanted, not what was practical. And as my mom and I had a conversation about this, she was like, I know the exact question I need to ask you, Dina. She's like, what did you ask for as a child that you didn't get because it wasn't practical? I sat there looking out the window for maybe 10, 15 seconds, thinking nothing. And then all of a sudden I started crying and I said, I know exactly what it is. Piano lessons. If I write down my bucket list, piano lessons are still in my top five. So for Christmas, my family and my partner all chipped in to get me a piano and lessons because at 42, that's still what I want. Right. So we get to these childhood things inside of us that we still want. And it starts to allow us to access our divine truth. And as people get tapped back into that, then they start to get different ideas about how to shift out of burnout. And I think you can tell what is really important because of actually when you say it, how you feel inside. So just now we heard the emotion in your voice because those piano lessons are magical. And it doesn't matter if you're not going to be a concert pianist or it's not practical. It's what really speaks to you. And so get those piano lessons. But you can tell what you really want because you'll have the same emotional feeling that Dina had just then. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. Thank you. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. I'm talking to Dina Justice today. We're talking on the subject of burnout. And this podcast, I suppose, is really actually every topic is exactly the same. It's actually really how to get to the meaningful life. And I think the meaningful life is the one that's going to help you avoid burnout. And if you'd like to be part of this project and help us, you can go along to our Patreon site, become a supporter, and you can get all sorts of benefits. One of the benefits is that you can write into us with your problem, and I will share it with my witnesses. And this is a letter that I've had. My husband starts getting physical when he gets into an argument. It starts off with name calling, coming face to face with me and pointing at my face, which makes me vulnerable. He goes out and does whatever he feels like. And I'm having trust issues with him since the emotional affair he had with another woman. He still hides his phone, goes out and comes home late. He claims he went to friends or that I nag him too much and he stays out too late to avoid seeing me. I need relationships to be transparent henceforth, to build trust and clear my paranoia. But he says, why should I show you my phone? He says he does not like to be told what to do, and I'm not his mum. I feel very dejected and do not know what to do, as I still love him, but I cannot live with someone who is so selfish and can be violent if I do or say anything that does not favour his thinking. I feel like I'm on a mental roller coaster where I'm on the verge of making a decision to leave. But when he apologises, I calm down, slowly forgive and forget and think it's best to stay for the sake of our toddler. I'm at the end of it. What should I do? 
I have to say, Dina, I think burnout is on the horizon here. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think there's burnout there. I really want to acknowledge the individual who wrote this in. Thank you for sharing your story and your vulnerability. And I want to even tie this back into what I mentioned earlier, Andrew, about the platinum rule. Do unto others as they want done unto them. I think a really critical aspect of how we create relationships is that we're constantly teaching other people how to treat us. And it's our job to also learn from other people's how they want to be treated. I feel like we often tolerate treatment from others because it's our conditioning. Where is this repeating a pattern from the past? Especially potentially from one of our parents. If we've taught somebody to treat us in ways that are actually harmful to us, like where do we get to start to take responsibility? And by claiming responsibility for that, and it's not good, bad, right, or wrong, but by claiming responsibility for that, we actually then get to take the power to change it. I love something that John Gottman said. I read all of his books years ago, and there was one thing in all of his books that latched on like glue to my mind. He said something like this, we only let others abuse us as much as we abuse ourselves. And I think that's coming right back into burnout. What are we doing for ourselves? Or what are we not doing? Say that again, because I think that that was really powerful, your lesson from John Gottman. So say it to us again. We only let others abuse us as much as we abuse ourselves. So how might she be abusing herself? By tolerating that kind of behavior, right? We are allowing that behavior to happen. So it's in recognizing it's our responsibility and being willing to step into our place of power to say, I'm a no to this. This can no longer continue. That's where we get to reclaim our power, to reclaim our hell yes, and to actually stop the pattern of abuse. It's an act of self-love when we step into that place and we take responsibility for it. We have to also come into it from a place of, it's not good, bad, right, or wrong. I am not good, bad, right, or wrong for allowing this to happen, but I get to have the power to actually change it. So let's put this into on-the-ground behavior. So he's come home late at night or the next morning, you are sitting around the breakfast table. He came in at four o'clock in the morning. What do you say? Maybe nothing. Is me talking going to be the instigator of that? Do I need to actually be worried about his behavior or try to control him? Or should I just take care of myself? Right. So how would that look under those circumstances? Taking care of myself would look like going to bed when I need to go to bed, not waiting up for him. Figuring out what I need to take responsibility for to make myself feel good. What do I need to do? How can I fill my time that's taking care of me instead of being concerned or worried about him and his behavior? This is a really interesting thing too. Something else I hear potentially in this story is that there might be anxious attachment happening, right? I'm concerned about what you're doing. I'm trying to get something from you that's caused by some lack in me. And so by turning that attention inwards, 
giving ourselves what we need in those moments can actually start to create a cycle where that other person can then actually show up because that energy is all of a sudden missing. They may have the ability to show up and be present with you in a different way. I've had a lot of that experience myself working through anxious attachment to secure attachment, right? What if I switch my energy? So you're feeling anxious. What do you do? Take care of myself. It's not somebody else's job to make me feel better or to fill the void within me. It's my job to be able to honor and recognize what it is that I'm feeling and what I need. And that might be just a simple pattern change of I'm just going to take care of myself. I'm going to go to bed when I need to. I'm going to let my partner have his life and his experience. And I'm going to figure out what I want to do from this place versus going after somebody else, right? Our projection at somebody else of what we interpret their behavior as is often our own stuff to work on. So getting to look at what do I need to do because I have this perception of this other person, where is the mirror for me to do my own inner work? What is that showing me that I can access something different to support myself to live a happier life or a more fulfilling life? And I think if you're doing this, you can get to a place where you're a bit calmer. And so instead of, give me your phone and trying to grab it off him, which is a sort of a bit like a being the critical parent while they're being the sulky teenager, no wonder he thinks you're his mum. The two of you can talk to each other adult to adult saying, you know, what are we going to do? You don't seem to be happy. I'm not happy. What can we do differently? And then we're in a sort of a place where we can have a conversation about it rather than a screaming match. So I think looking after yourself could get you into a calm enough place to be able to have a less angry or a less tearful kind of conversation, which might be a more productive one. So I hope that has been helpful. So we've been talking about the meaningful life and you've been my witness today on the meaningful life. So I think we need to find out what makes your life meaningful. Yeah, I love your questions here, Andrew. What makes my life meaningful? And I think I've already tapped into many of these today. Doing what truly lights me up. Being in alignment with my work, where I'm showing up to be a support system and a champion of other people and their lives, that makes me really, really fulfilled. It gives my life so much meaning. There's another aspect in there that I had to learn coming through burnout as well, and that was the layers of being vulnerable and authentic with the people around me. As a very sensitive child, I learned to just shut it all off. So learning to be vulnerable again is probably the number one thing that I did differently to help me move out of burnout and to help me create even more fulfilling relationships. I couldn't have created the relationship that I have with my partner now without that vulnerability. And you've certainly shown the vulnerability today, and that has been really beautiful. Thank you. Anything else that makes your life meaningful? Yes, creating these incredible relationships. I've taken some of my oldest friendships 
to new, incredible depths and heights because of being present in the moment with them, being vulnerable with them, being authentic to our hell yeses in everyday life with each other instead of obligation. As we transformed our relationships into these hell yeses and not obligation, our relationships have deepened and evolved and expanded beautifully. And the last thing I want to contribute to this about what makes my life meaningful has been cultivating that skill of being present in every moment with whoever is with me and also bringing in layers of gratitude and appreciation. The more I've shifted my focus from scarcity to gratitude and appreciation for everything in my life, the more amazing and abundant my life has become. And that gives it so much meaning. That is so beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing with us. Now, this is the point where I'm going to be saying goodbye to Dina for most of you, but for people who've joined our supporters club, then you get the extra Dina. We go the extra mile with her and we're going to talk about what we've learned. I'm going to share with her what I've learned from this podcast and uh, I'm going to ask her what she's learned. And she's also going to share with us the three things she knows to be true. So if you would like to find out more about how you can get that information, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. And Dina, for now, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to be here. I really admire the work that you do in this world. Thank you for helping other people have great lives and amazing relationships. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.